Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, podcasters. It's Ed here, and this is another round of the Paul Distro Podcast. I'd like you to cast your mind back to the heady days of Liz Truss's premiership. In her infamous mini-budget, she promised to rip up the so-called economic orthodoxy, slashing taxes for the rich in a bid to make Britain more like Singapore, but one where you're allowed to chew gum. We all know what happened next. The markets revolted, she became the shortest-serving Prime Minister of all time, and we're still paying for it now. While it would be nice to think that this was the solo mission of an economic terrorist, that's not the case. The ideas that Liz Truss was so determined to implement can be found in practice all over the world. From Singapore to Canary Wharf, there are so-called zones where capital can run unburdened from the limits of pesky old democracy, and the British right are still looking to them for inspiration. I unpacked all this in my interview with Quinn Slobodian. Quinn's a Canadian professor and the author of the excellent Crack Up Capitalism, where he explores all this and more. I hope you enjoy it. Am I tough enough? Strong and stable leadership. Total rhubarb. Hell yes, I'm tough enough. Shut the fridge. Not another one. It's the Politics Show Pubcast. Quinn Slobodian, hello. Hi. How are you doing today? Doing great. Excellent. Uh, Welcome to Politics Show. Uh, We're here to talk about your new book, Crack Up Capitalism, which is excellent. I've really enjoyed it. Um, Before we get into that, it's a very weighty book, lots of heavy themes. Yeah. expansive themes. Before we explore them, can you just explain who you are and what you do? Sure. I'm a historian. I teach at a place called Wellesley College near Boston in the United States. And I also write a lot for newspapers and magazines. And this is my way of kind of intervening into the political debate. Yeah. So I think your book, what the issues you're exploring, are they relate to world economics and the history of capitalism and its relationship with, with democracy. Um, there's a new orthodoxy, isn't there, that people say the nation state is back. We're t- mm-hmm. They're taking back capitalism. They're taking back modification. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's coming back globalization over. They have yep. to on top once again. Exactly. You say that's not quite right. Yeah, that's right. In fact, that's sort of one of the reasons why I wanted to write the book in the first place was a kind of dissatisfaction with that either or binary you described that it was sort of like, so the narrative went. We had globalization since the end of the Cold War, and then 2016 came along, and Brexit and Trump supposedly like shattered that consensus, and we were all stuck back at the nation. And since then, 
you've been left with this kind of unsatisfying choice of kind of one or the other. Do you defend globalization and the status quo version? Or do you say we need to pivot back to more national level control? And as someone who's been reading a lot of anthropologists, geographers who are interested in how capitalism works, it's crystal clear that things don't just operate at either one scale or the other. In fact, the way that finance works, manufacturing works, any kind of services are all happening at concentrated levels below the surface of the nation. And so if you want to understand inequality or political representation, lack thereof, you have to go searching for kind of spaces that exist below the envelope of the nation. So the book was kind of like, what is that below the nation? What is it politically? What is it practically speaking? And how might it sort of help to give us a more expansive political imagination than the one we're currently stuck with? Mm, and you call these areas zones. Mm-hmm. What, what's a zone? Well, a zone is technically, it's a place that's been kind of like ring-fenced off from the rest of the nation and provided with a different set of laws, regulations, often that are more friendly to labor or more friendly to mobile capital, often giving more power to corporations than individuals. A classic example here in London is Canary Wharf, but other places like Shenzhen or Dubai in certain ways are places where uh, investors can kind of come in and carte blanche and a la carte, pick their own kinds of laws and regulations that are going to work inside of the 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 regulatory framework of the nation. So we'll come to Canary Wharf in a bit. Mm-hmm. I thought we would kind of talk about how did these zones come to be? Well, I mean, one of the reasons I wrote the book is the last one I wrote was this book called Globalists. And it ended with this moment where Milton Friedman was standing in Hong Kong in 1978. This is like the high point of social democratic demands in places like Britain and the United States. It was a time where um, new nation states were asking for more uh, global redistribution. It seemed at that time like national self-determination was kind of on the march. And Milton Friedman was standing in a crown colony of of Great Britain and saying like, this wonderful old artifact of empire actually looks to us like the future. And what made it look like the future to him was that it was a place that was designed mostly for economic freedom without the pressures of democracy. And as it turns out, this is where the genesis of the zone comes in. He wasn't the only one who was fascinated with it. The Chinese Communist Party was also watching very closely the success of Hong Kong and decided to basically emulate and model a similar version of sort of miniature Hong Kongs on their coast from Shenzhen into Guangdong province. So the opening of China really begins the kind of mythology of the zone because this idea becomes sort of widespread and popular amongst development experts and investors that you can subdivide a nation into areas that can make it more attractive and safer for people to come and invest. That's one storyline. There's other storylines about like the Shannon Airport in Ireland, which used to be a place where planes needed to stop to refuel on the way from North America. So because it was a site that was kind of outside of national borders, they introduced duty-free areas, and then they introduced kind of tax-free manufacturing centers around the airport. Other countries looked at that and said, maybe we could do that here in Taiwan, Philippines, Puerto Rico, and so on. So this idea of sort of perforating nations is something that sneaks in from the story of tax havenry, from manufacturing, but all sort of converges on this novel kind of political geographical unit that I call in the book, The Zone. And they're, they're kind they're for the, you mentioned it was for the um, benefit of labor, but you meant in the sense that there's more labor, that labor can be more efficient for capital rather than being, there being greater 
rights for workers. Yes, exactly. Often there were sort of fewer fewer rights to organize, fewer rights to kind of express protest or express discontent with the way things are. I think I think that's a really interesting point about people don't really realize how how you hear, like, you hear about free ports, etc. And that's mm-hmm. quite. I've never been to a free port. Most people probably will never go to a free port. Right. But people in London might have gone to Canary Wharf. Right. A concrete example is I was trying to do box tops in Canary Wharf. Yep. And a security guard came over and said, you can't do that. That's right. I said, no, this is a public highway. He said, no, it's not. No, it's not. I, I, was, I was baffled. It's just, right. it's, it's, how can this entire stretch be um, not not public? Like, how do you know the same rights in this area? Yep. They do two yards away. It's, it's pretty yeah. It's incredible. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you had a close encounter with a zone right there. <laughs> what you experienced was exactly the thing that makes it attractive for investors and for developers in the first place, right? Actually, I mean, Canary Wharf is a completely appropriate example because when Friedman is standing in Hong Kong in 1978, literally six months later, Jeffrey Howe, Thatcher's first chancellor of the Exchequer, is sitting in a bar pub at the Isle of Dogs saying exactly the same thing Friedman is, which is like Hong Kong, not just a weird old artifact, could actually be a model for how we can reinvigorate um, deindustrializing cities and, and towns and places like Great Britain. And indeed, from that moment, the first Thatcher budget included a proposal for a series of enterprise zones, which carved out space inside of inner cities, in the Isle of Dogs, for example, Liverpool, for example, gave greater rights to developers, took away rights from local municipal governments. The Greater London Council is obliterated shortly thereafter. So this idea that you can have a new set of rules that are um, designed in favor of one set of people rather than the people at large is the kind of the core selling point of the zone. I mean, the fascinating thing about that is that um, you had in that budget X number of enterprise zones and a, a handful of free ports too, 1980, very first budget almost the exact same free ports that you have in Sunak's most recent budget. Um, Some of the people who were advising on that first budget, for example, Almond Butler of the Adam Smith Institute, sitting on the advisory council for free ports for Boris Johnson and later for Liz Truss. So the idea that that could be presented as some kind of novel idea is actually hilarious. And it's literally been around since most of us were born. Um, And with the same kind of disappointing results, right? Even when it succeeds, it succeeds in the form of Canary Wharf, which is basically a huge giveaway to developers. The state builds infrastructure on behalf of private mm. actors. Most of the money gets either um, you know, put on conveyor belts and taken outside of the country, or else the, set, the spaces of residential real estate gets used as kind of glorified safety deposit boxes for investors from abroad. And on top of that, you can't even have the same rights of protest or organization that you would expect in a kind of workaday street anywhere else in the country. Yeah, and locals or residents close to Canary Wharf, if they work there, they work in kind of like the like the underclass. Right. Like they work as doormen, as cleaners, et cetera. Right. And- exactly. And so that's, I think, a really essential part of the story I'm telling in this book, too, is that the zone often imagines itself if it's a place that's inhabited by, let's say, high-end financial services workers in a place like Singapore or Dubai or Canary Wharf as a place that somehow is autonomous and it exists sort of in a, in, a, in a purified kind of bubble. But in all these cases, they're completely dependent on a kind of a hinterland, a reserve supply of labor, like just beyond the gates of the zone, so to speak, that can be brought in when they're required and ejected when they're no longer required. And a place like Dubai, where you have, you know, almost 90% of the population is not citizens, 
means that 90% of the labor force can be at any point just told to leave. And that is a core part of the vision of the zone. So when people talk about free ports as miraculous policy ideas, what they are saying sort of subtextually is also we want to be able to turn you know, labor on like a faucet, bring it in, we want and eject it when we, when we no longer want it. And that's, for me, one of the more kind of politically disturbing parts of that uh, imagination. I think what is especially interesting about Canadian Wharf and its existence is it was nearly so different. You mentioned mm-hmm. the Greater London Council. Right. They had quite radical plans for like municipal socialism. Right. How they were setting up dialogue with local residents. How can we make this area of like derelict Docklands? How, how can we make it work for you? Yep. And the state and capital hand in hand said, absolutely not. Yeah. This is this is for us. Yeah, exactly. And so one of the things I like about the chapter is I was able to draw on the excellent work of other historians and people who have been writing about the kind of alternative imaginations, like the people's plan for the Docklands was very different from what came to exist. The GLC, the Greater London Council, is fascinating because the things they were doing then were often seen as kind of like fringe, like almost hippie, way too out there kind of radical things. But what were they doing? They were doing things like, how can we have useful technology and put that in the hands of people? How can we create like kindergartens and daycares that are operated by parents and are more accessible to people from especially different immigrant backgrounds? So they were doing a lot of outreach to new arrivals to the UK and people who were maybe not proficient in English. Um, they were even doing things related to kind of greening and kind of reducing um, reducing car usage and making it easier to take uh, public transit rather than private transit. So this the kind of kooky stuff that all got squashed really by the Thatcherite moment is stuff that only now people are sort of clawing their way back towards. And there's some, and they were just also just like sort of exuberantly creative and interesting people in the sense that, for example, they got together with someone who had a barge, someone who used to work the barges there and put attached to the side of it a huge dragon that was shaped like the Thames, which became their logo and took it up the river and delivered it straight to Westminster. Um, you know, in a kind of celebratory, festive kind of a spirit. So part of the book's uh, back and forth is like, yes, you have this one kind of cold, bloodless model of like perforating and tearing up territory, but you also have often resistance, which is often, often forgotten because repressed and marginalized, but which I think gives for people on the left, like me, um, some hope and sort of something like a, a usable past that we can go back and figure out how to restore somehow even in a more difficult environment. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Not another one. It's the Politics Show podcast. All these decisions taken in the 80s to invite Kathleen to give them kind of un, unbridled access just to land that you come in and experiment and do what you want. We're really starting to see the repercussions of this. A really good example being the P&O ferry scandal where P&O sacked all of its British workforce with no notice and 
people were like, how can this be allowed to happen? Mm-hmm. And the answer is because they were in a zone, essentially. Right, exactly. This, I mean, especially bringing in Dubai and Hong Kong and Singapore is really important for me for this book because when someone, if someone were to ask you sort of like, what's the prototypical neoliberal state? I mean, people might say if they're really critical, like Pinochet's Chile, or they would more likely say Thatcher's Britain or Ronald Reagan's United States. But for the last couple of decades, I really do think that someplace like Dubai is much more important as a place that has been used self-consciously as a kind of a template and a model. I mean, I think the current British Conservative Party really sees Dubai as not only a place that could they should look to for like lessons on how to reorganize the British economy, but also a place, as you're suggesting, that they're already actively working with economically. So DP World is the sort of state-owned logistics company that sets up ports and harbors all over the world. And they own P&O Ferry. They own the P&O shipping lines. It's just sort of like the grand um, imperial ferry and shipping service of the British Empire in the 19th century. And it was because they owned it that they could sack everyone overnight because it was only um, answerable to the legislation of wherever it was flagged or for who owned it rather than the domestic authorities. The fact that Britain, you know, had the CEO of DP World on the advisory committee post-Brexit to help to to reconfigure the economy, the fact that Britain was actually going in with DP World on some of the construction of ports and harbors in the west coast of Africa suggests something which is kind of disturbing but true, which is that people see Dubai and they think of it as a wonderful place. I mean, this is something I mentioned in the book is when these nation branding consultancies start taking off in the early 2000s. They discovered to their surprise that actually your reputation wasn't damaged if you were an authoritarian government, Mm. as long as you were seen as being efficient, you know, productive, growth oriented, glitzy, having opportunities for luxury and investment. So the World World Cup's a great example this year. Right, exactly. So now, especially with Saudi Arabia also moving into the kind of soft power world of cultural events, climate summits. I mean, how hilarious is that? Places that are like, you know you know, individually responsible for the highest levels of carbon consumption per capita of anywhere in the world are now presenting themselves as sort of the um, the tribunes of a, of a climate transition is comical. But it's but it's it's would be, you know, funny if it wasn't so sad, which is that I think authoritarian capitalism that is seen as um, effective is still looked to by many governments as um, a lodestar for self-organization. Well, even if the question of democracy or indeed human rights is sort of completely trampled and left by the wayside. I suppose Dubai is also a very good example of, you say in your book, um, there's, a, there's an attitude of, if we're going to be authoritarian, mm-hmm. let's make it work. As in, you, right. can, go, you can go move to Dubai. Like, lots of people in Britain do it. Like, say you're 20, in your 20s, 30s, you go to yep. Dubai, make way more money, say as a teacher, mm-hmm. that you so you pay no taxes, you, mm-hmm. it's sunny. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can go to the big indoor indoor ski so the biggest indoor ski slope in the world right there's lots for you to do mm-hmm. and that makes it attractive no one's going if they would object say we're like we're going to actually democratize dubai and all these aspects of your lifestyle are going to plummet i think right i think it's a really important thing to consider when they, they track authoritarianism it can make itself attractive absolutely and this is i mean one of the things that sort of hangs over this book is that is the history of the british empire so the first four chapters are like Hong Kong, Singapore, London, Dubai. And it seems like the world of sort of high-tech, high-glamour emirates in Dubai in the 21st century is like miles away from the history of the British Empire. But part of my argument in the book is to sort of bring that older history into the newer history, 
not only in the sense that if you were young and ambitious and, enter and enterprising as a young man in the 1870s, maybe you would go out to the colonies and like try your hand at some business locally and see if you could build up a reputation and come back. Similar to the way people go off and act as like a, you know, an asset manager in Dubai for a mm -hmm. couple of years and come back with a nest egg. But also because if you look at it with an economic lens and through the lens of capitalism, the empire wasn't just like one big civilizing mission where everyone was made to sort of, you know, be transformed in the image of the mother country. Mm -hmm. It was actually all about creating these strange little um, different forms of legal jurisdiction. So there was crown colonies and concessions and protectorates. And Dubai itself was part of what was called the truthful coast, the truthful states. They had to invent a word to describe <laughs> what the Emirates actually were because the relationship between, well, the UK like protects trade, it protects security, it doesn't tell people exactly what they have to do, is actually creating a kind of a seam in capitalism sort of organization that you can capitalize on if you're smart. You can be like, oh, that means I can bring stuff in here. It doesn't get duty on it. And that means I can take it out mm -hmm. in there. And that's still how capitalism works, right? And so I think there's ways that we can see these zones as kind of like the inheritors of that imperial legacy of sort of legal pluralism and territorial diversity, which can help, I think, also make sense of what can also seem weird other times, which is like, what does the legacy of the British Empire, which seems so distant and based on like, you know, certain ideas of like masculine valor and military and martial virtues. You know, you walk around London, I walk around London and see the monument mm -hmm. like along the Thames and stuff. It can seem very foreign. It can seem very disconnected and detached from the kind of world we live in. But if you think of Stanford Raffles standing in the harbor of Singapore and saying, I came here, I found a legal loophole and I made a million, then you're like, oh wait, that starts to be a bit more like the attitude that often young people have. And the free ports, what are they except kind of creating internal colonies. I mean, it's kind of creating ex states of exception inside of the mother country now. When you can't go anywhere else to go and make a colony, you make it a one at home, right? Mm. You, you recolonize your own mother country, which is unfortunately, I think, the way that one can understand this sort of boomerang effect of imperial practices brought home in an age of sort of hypercapitalism. And then as well as these internal colonies, there's things like the China's Belt and Rose Initiative mm -hmm. having, well, ex-traditional colonies, I suppose, mm -hmm. uh, building infrastructure in uh, the global south and then also projects like Saudi Arabia's ne is it Neom is that how you say it or I think so it's all capitalized is it any yeah, right. NEOM city Neom <laughs> it's here um, which is it's just a, it seems like something from fantasy doesn't it it's just the yeah. ultra futuristic city where everything is going to be great fun, funded by the most oppressive mm -hmm. well, one of the most oppressive regimes in in the world yeah I mean the Chinese Belt and Road which is you know went from being something that seemed like it was going to like take over the world four years ago to something that is now like almost falling into like receivership and like one country after another is a perfect example of the kind of stuff I'm describing in the book. Because if you look at the way that the British Empire expanded, they basically also touched down in little coaling stations and trade ports and free ports, you know, whether it was on the Arabian Peninsula, Singapore, India. And so they often had a really light footprint where their concentrated uh, population, concentrations of power and money and trade. Dubai was very good at sort of looking at that. Singapore is very good at looking at that and being like, let's take over the old British Empire's model. And so Singapore starts building ports and shipping centers all along that same chain of, 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 of ports. Dubai does the same thing. With the Belt and Road Initiative, you kind of get China, which had first sort of self-Hong Kongized in a way, 
now kind of going global and setting up its and retracing the steps of the British Empire sort of backwards back to the source, right? And so by the high point of uh, Belt and Road Initiative funding, my favorite moment, you know, that comes somewhere in the book is Boris Johnson, you know, breaking ground next to someone from uh, Beijing saying like, finally, we have big new investors for the expansion of the Docklands, right? And and he had this famous statement where he said like, you know, the, the 10 richest investors should be given sort of knighthoods automatically, even if they're not even British citizens, because we rely on the ultra wealthy people. They are actually our life's blood. I mean, the kind of stuff where you're like, what the hell kind of populism is that? Right? This is really bizarre. <laughs> who does that appeal to? This is really uh, strange. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it appeals to overseas investors, which is who the audience was. But that very place, you know, that was set up to be like the new Canary Wharf is now just a ghost town, right? Like it's just sealed off and empty. Because when you set up your whole business model as a country around, you know, supplicating yourself and making yourself as hospitable as possible to bend over backwards and contort yourself for the desires of foreign investors, even if they're other states like the Chinese, then when conditions change, you're left high and dry. And it's sad to think that, you know, the well-being of the British people and the British economy is dependent on just kind of like the whims of, in this case, a, a quite definitely undemocratic form of capitalism on the other side of the world, right? It seems like not sort of up to the the kind of the possibilities of the like the rich tradition of kind of collective self-care and pride that Britain actually has. Mm-hmm. I think it's a case of the government <laughs> is the gov- various governments around the world re- reaping what they what they so they they invited yeah. these people in. Uh-huh. They needed the state. Uh-huh. They don't need the state anymore. So they're uh-huh. now so they're now trying to like the masters of the universe, the global financial industry is trying to kind of undermine what it is, and it's the the well, the British state is stripping away its assets to make it more accessible, mm-hmm. more accessible to these things. I, I think it's just dangerous, isn't it? Well, I think that the problem is, you know, it goes back to the way you started with, which is sort of like the nationalist backlash debate from circa 2016, right? So I think that if you have sort of reconfigured your economy such that you need to be reliant only on foreign investors to survive, and you think that globalization is a natural process beyond the control of any politician or any state, and the only thing governments can do is kind of let themselves be guided by this depersonalized abstract thing called globalization, the global economy, which was the kind of common sense, like from about, you know, 1995 to 2016, no politician of a major party in a, in a Western country, industrialized country would disagree. It would just be like subtle variations on how you're supposed to bow down to the kind of like the forces of globalization, right? Um, when the backlash came, it kind of came in two forms. One from the left in the United States, I would say the rupture was actually created by Bernie Sanders' success in the Democratic uh, primary campaign in, the, in 2016, when he just, as he'd been saying for decades, like, no, we can't do that. We need to be, think, be attentive to the ways that globalization is transforming our country, often for the worse. And we need to answer with economic policies. And so economic policies led. Then when his message failed in the Democratic Party, was sort of cannibalized by Steve Bannon and Donald Trump, the economic language was used, but it wasn't actually followed through on. So what did Trump do as a, as a president? Well, he drove through it in one of the biggest tax cuts in decades. And that's kind of the, the only thing that he did as a major policy decision. What did he have left was just the culture war. Same thing happened in Britain. You had 
You had Jeremy Corbyn, who was willing to make economic steps to actually change a globalized economic system to one in which there was more national control. That language of national control was picked up by the conservatives, but they didn't actually have any means of following through on it. I think that the vision for Brexit was always driven by people who wanted to go global more than they wanted to actually, you know, create some more forms of like sort of national self-sustainability. So all they were left with then, as they are now, is the kind of culture war. So you get this very comical bifurcation now where someone like Viktor Orban, for example, will be, you know, wholeheartedly, full-throatedly opposing the globalists and assuming and arguing that George Soros has done everything bad to his country. But at the same time, he's inviting Samsung in, creating a special economic zone, one of the few in Europe, that gives them rights more than other, com other companies. And he's standing in the way of creating something like a global corporate minimum tax that the OECD was trying to roll out. So it's very important not to be fooled by the kind of the cultural smokescreen that I think is used. I think it is possible to restore some level of national sort of autonomy, even in a globalized world. But you need to take the economic side seriously and not be fooled into thinking that it's actually can be remedied through culture war or, you know, racist exclusionary policies. I think it kind of brings brings me to my like, kind of final point, final question about, so in your book, it seems that there's a, there's a heavyweight title bounce between mm -hmm. capitalism and democracy mm -hmm. as we know it. Mm -hmm. So it's a two-part question, but yeah. who wins and how do we make sure democracy wins? Mm. Assuming that's what you want. Most people I, it is. It is. I mean, so one of the things that, I think there's two ways of answering that question. I think one thing I would say is that we need to be, you know, quite sort of clear-eyed about whether what we have at present is a healthy form of democracy already. So I think that in the United States, for example, um, there are ways that the democratic process is 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 pretty broken. I mean, I think that the form of proportional representation through which Congress has elected, the fact that there's no cap on corporate donations makes already the gerrymandering of electoral districts already makes the idea that we live in a kind of one person, one vote, sort of small R Republican polity, like pretty dubious. So I think the one question is like, how can we reform democracy itself such that it comes closer to something that is worthy of the name? Um, but then the other question is like, how can we prevent more and more of what it means to be part of a democracy besides the act of voting. If you think of democracy more broadly as like the creation of a space within which people are able to have kind of contesting views about the good life where like there's some minimal form of distribution and redistribution so that there's like a baseline of economic equality, I think that is being sort of um, privatized away into kind of a fee-for-service model more and more in the United States as in the UK. So I think that, you know, the question is really not who wins capitalism or democracy. It's like, how can we contain the excesses of capitalism such that we have the chance to actually build up a democracy that in most cases we're not um, currently enjoying? So to do so would be, you know, first and foremost, start, stop looking to places that practice openly authoritarian, undemocratic forms of capitalism as somehow models to which we should aspire to. I mean, that's to me the most grotesque and obvious thing that needs to be done. But secondly, you know, restore power to people mostly in their workplaces, because I think workplace democracy is a category that's, you know, extremely important. 
extremely important because most people spend their days not under public government, but in the private government of the workplace in which the boss is often kind of a tyrant or a despot. So restoring the ability of like self-expression and collective self-organization on the job, for which there are hopeful signs in the, in the UK and in the US, sort of recent strike waves, resurgence of union activism, I see that as much part of the restoration of democracy per se as those things that one would see as contained within the world of like electoral politics. Mm. Yeah, so, jo- so join a union. Join a union, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Excellent. Um, your new book, Crack Up Capitalism, is out next week. And uh, I recommend that everyone goes out by it. Goes out by it. Thank you very much for, for your time. Thank you. It's the Politics Show Pubcast. Thanks for listening to that episode of the Pubcast. If you enjoyed it, I reckon you'll also enjoy Unfiltered, our interview podcast. Here's a little taste of the episode with Gary Lineker. I love my life. I enjoy I enjoy fame. People are lovely. It's so easy to be distracted by the tiny percentage on, on Twitter. In the real world, it's not like that at all. I think I've had only two instances in my entire life where people have had a pop. One old lady elbowed me in my back. <laughs> She was on her way to a Tommy Robinson rally. Really? Yes. Okay, that nice. old lady, she gave me, oh, lady car. Something like, whoa, whoa. Yeah. And then I had another one where I was going shopping, my groceries, and some bloke shouted out of the road, you hate Britain? You hate Britain, don't you? <laughs> no, I really love Britain. But anyway. That's Unfiltered with Ollie Dugmore, wherever you get your podcast. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.